So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And again, we're going to be in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. The last time we were in this verse, we had begun our little three-part series uh, called To the Saints at Philippi. And in part one, we considered Paul's, well, I want to say exhortation, but really it's a command. It's an imperative. Do not be anxious about anything. And he's telling believers at Philippi who were living in an overwhelmingly pagan, morally corrupt culture not to be anxious about anything in a culture that sounds and looks a lot like our culture today. And so their lives had become very difficult because of their love for Christ. The world hated them for their faith. So how in the world, in those circumstances, could the people at Philippi be anxious for nothing? Well, Paul's answer, we learned uh, last time, saturates this letter to the Philippians. The reason we don't have, really, at the bottom of it all, any reason to be anxious is because of Christ himself. We need not be anxious right now because of what God has already done for us on the cross and because of what he will do someday when he comes again. And so that's the reason that we need not be anxious. So today in part two of our series, Paul shows us the means of not being anxious. That is how to have peace. Peace comes by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and that's what we just sang about and so this is what we're going to meditate upon today Philippians 4 and I'm going to read the verses around it to to remind us of the context because that's extremely important so I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 but our concentration today is going to be on the latter part of verse 6 rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then verse 7, which is what we'll meditate on at the end of December, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Hallelujah. So as we begin, let's consider what it means when Paul says prayer and supplication and what what the impact of this is on our faith and on our lives and our walk with the Lord. And so to do that, let me just give you a little bit of an illustration about where some of us find ourselves sometimes when it comes to prayer. Now, sometimes my wife Leslie goes missing at home. And the reason for this is that she ends up going out into our woods and and working out there. Uh, She's picking up sticks and raking leaves, and I'm not kidding, pulling down saplings with her bare hands. And so uh, the woods look fantastic. But when she does this, I have no idea where to go and look for her because we've got a lot of woods. I never know which direction to go to find her. And so sometimes I'll just sort of lazily stand on the back stoop and yell for her, holler for her, Leslie, where are you? Well, if she's out front, she can't hear me. And so I get no response. 
And the reason she can't hear me is because the house is blocking the sound of my voice. Now, sometimes we can feel that way when it comes to prayer. We can feel as though there's a barrier between us and God. This can be especially true when we're going through difficult trials. It can feel like God can't or won't hear us. It can feel as though we're shouting into the wind. Have you ever felt that way? I have many times. And so as we watch our culture quickly decay into confusion and increasing hatred against God, it can seem like God isn't answering our prayers at all. Or worse yet, that somehow he's losing the battle against evil. Years ago, I was going through a very dark night of my soul, and I felt that way. I felt exactly like Asaph in Psalm 77, beginning in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? That's the way we feel sometimes. But then a couple verses later, Asaph finds the remedy for his troubled soul, which gives flight to his prayers. In verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And then he goes on to list all of the great things that God has done in the history of God's chosen people, the Hebrews. How God had worked wonders and even had parted the Red Sea to save the Hebrew children from slavery in Egypt. And so Asaph is teaching us that the foundation of our prayers isn't feelings or circumstances. Amen, God wants us to express our feelings and our, our, our concern over our circumstances. But that isn't the foundation for how we go about prayer. We go about prayer differently. You see, our confidence is not founded in the way that we feel because my goodness if we tried to be confident in the way that we feel one day we'd feel great and the next day we wouldn't right that's the way our feelings go that's the way our circumstances go and so our confidence is that God hears us God actually hears us and he cares for us and then he faithfully acts in our lives isn't that amazing and because of that we find peace, true peace. This is the same foundation that Paul has laid for us in Philippians. We need not be anxious in the first place because of God's faithfulness, because of the blood of his son, and how his son makes us secure for eternity in the presence of the Lord. This reality just dissolves our anxiety and gives wings to our prayers because we can pray in confidence. When I remembered the deeds of the Lord in my own life, God shored up my confidence in his ability to hear my cries. He shored up my confidence uh, to understand that that he understands my plight. He he undergirded my confidence that he's going to act in my life because he already has. He already has. And that's when my anxiety began to melt away like a burning candle. And so what Paul is saying in verse 6 is that prayer with thanksgiving is 
the first and right response to all of our trials and concerns. Prayer is powerful not because we pray with with gusto and passion, but because we, we pray to a God who hears us and moves in our lives. He is the one who makes prayer powerful, not us. And so before we react to our circumstances in ungodly ways, we pray that God will use us in the situation, that God will guide us and shape us into the image of Christ for the glory of Christ, so that when people look at us, they see Jesus Christ, they see the hope that we have in him, and they see the gospel, they see their own wretchedness of of their sins. And they desire the Savior because they know that they need him. And that's who we become. We become vessels of that grace and mercy. We become people who, who mirror, as, as Jimmy was saying a minute ago, uh, but this is in a different way. We become people who mirror the, the glory and the holiness of Christ. But you know, before we go further, we've, we've, we've got to clear up our understanding of some terms here because Paul says prayer and supplication. Now, these are synonyms, but Paul isn't quite being uh, repetitive here. There's a distinction between these two words, even as they both encompass reverent communication with with God. And many of us are familiar with the Acts model of prayer. In fact, that's what what Jimmy, where did he go? He must be downstairs or somewhere. Anyway, uh, that's what Jimmy opened our service with, with the, the ACTS model of prayer. And ACTS is an acronym meaning adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so when we, when we pray, we can use this model. It's not the only model of prayer. I'll show you one uh, in a few minutes, uh, another one. But this is a great way to structure our prayers, to to keep our minds focused on the Lord and and, and on the the duty and the task at hand to pray. And this model has its origins, well, with a man named Origen. Uh, Origen instead of Origen, Uh, but he was one of the early church fathers, and he lived in the second and third centuries, and he rightly asserted that in general, biblical prayer consists of those, those four things, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so for Paul, the word prayer would more fit into the category of A, or adoration. This is the, the reverent and humble acknowledgement of the greatness of God and what he's done and who he is, his perfect character and holiness. I love the way Psalm 145 begins, and this would be a great, a great way for any of us to pray this week. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a great way to open our our prayers? And this is the right way to approach the throne of God, by the way. It really is the only way we ought to approach the throne of God. You know, we Americans aren't so used to bowing before a king, are we? In fact, most of us would rebel against the idea, and I would be one of them. But as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, who happen to be American, 
It is our duty to bow before our God, our great God, and our great King. It is what we do as Christians because he has saved us. So supplication, as opposed to prayer, is the S in the Acts model. And this is simply another kind of prayer. And this is simply when we, just, when we ask God for help. Lord, I need your help. Help me. And so we, we ask for help for ourselves and for others, but we always do so with that reverence and devotion, that respect that Jimmy was talking about. We always do it with that attitude. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We bow before him in prayer. Now, we find supplication even in the Lord's Prayer, just by way of example. Give us this day our daily bread. It can be very simple. And so, this is also when we pray for Aunt Ruth to get well. It's when we uh, pray for a clear head uh, during our math test. Boy, I prayed that one a lot when I was a kid. We pray for safe travels. We pray for the salvation of people in our families or, or, or among our friends. We, we pray for, for the words that we need for a difficult conversation. I was praying that this week. But regardless of the type of prayer, for the Christian, prayer is the most important thing we do besides reading God's word. God's word is how we get to know God And praying is how we fellowship with God. Praying is how we adore God and confess our sins to him. Praying is how we give thanks to him for what we've done. And praying is how we ask for things to be done for his glory. The Puritan Thomas Watson declared that prayer is the soul's breathing. What breathing is to the body, praying is to the soul. We absolutely cannot survive without it. Have you ever thought about prayer in that way? Martin Luther asserted that as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Is prayer that important to you? Do you realize what you're missing when you don't pray? Now, Christ often prayed during his time with us. We know this, and he taught us uh, to follow his example. Uh, And he even gave us that template for prayer that is so famous in Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 13, which Diane read for us a few minutes ago. And yet, according to uh, a survey a few years ago of 17,000 evangelicals like us, we pray as evangelicals, only an average of less than a minute a day. And for pastors, on average, we pray only seven minutes a day. Wow. And so Tom Pennington, a pastor of of a church in Texas, and he's a well-known author and, and teacher, he admonishes us, our spiritual troubles stem either from our neglect of Scripture or prayer. And how true that is, isn't it? How true that is. And so it's no wonder then that that the trials of our personal lives and the downward spiral of our our culture can, can just drag us down, make us depressed and angry. Because when we neglect to allow our souls to breathe, that's what happens. If you 
if you put a cloth over your mouth like we have to wear all the time now, uh, and, but, but pro, keep your body from breathing, you're going to get grumpy real quick, right? We've experienced that in these last months. But this is what happens when we neglect to allow our souls to breathe and we become depressed and angry and frustrated. But what is prayer anyway? What is it? Well, it's, it's really pretty simple. Biblical prayer is a two-way communication with God. Now, it's two-way as opposed to the pagans and how they prayed. The prayers of the pagans in ancient history, both in, in the Old and New Testament times, were one-way desperate calls to a distant, unresponsive set of gods. They had so many of them, they didn't know which one to pray for or to pray to. And so they were calling out like I do sometimes on my back stoop where Leslie can't hear me, just hollering into the wind. By contrast, the Jews' prayers from the very beginning have, have been conversational with God both listening and responding to their prayers. Even as, as prayers became more ritualized and formalized for the public worship at the temple, the clear understanding for the Jews behind prayer was that God both hears and acts. God is there. He is listening, and he's going to do something about what we pray for, maybe in our own hearts or maybe for something around us that we can see that needs prayer. But you see, this was Paul's understanding of prayer. The very act of praying is an affirmation that God listens and responds. So if you take the opposite of that, when we don't pray, what are we saying? We're not really sure that God does listen and respond. So in Matthew chapter 6, again in that passage that Diane read, a part of Jesus' point is that we don't need to to you know, if, if, if we're having trouble with prayer, the, the, the cure for that isn't to just heap up a big pile of empty words like the Gentiles were doing. They thought the more that they cried out, the more words they said, the more likely it was for their gods to hear them. That's like me on the back stoop again, as if more words are some, somehow going to make Leslie hear me. Leslie, Leslie, hey, Leslie, Leslie, I need you. Hey, Leslie, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? But she can't hear me. What I need to do is stop babbling into the wind and go near to her where she can hear me. But how do we do that? How do we get close enough to God that he can hear us? Well, brothers and sisters, the good news is, is that work's already been done. We're able to approach the throne of, of God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord who draws us near to God in the first place. I love this passage in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You remember the veil was torn in two when he was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. That opened our access to God the Father when he did that. And since we have a great 
a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Faithful, faithful. And so since God draws us near to him through Christ, there is absolutely no question in the universe that we're close enough for him to be heard and for him to hear us. No question at all. Christ is meditating on our behalf at his right hand. We need not wonder whether God hears us. And shouldn't that give us a tremendous amount of peace? No matter what's going on in this world, that should give us a tremendous amount of peace that we can communicate with the living God of the whole universe, the author of our salvation. And so that's why Jesus admonishes us again in Matthew 6, verse 8, not to be like those Gentiles who heap up empty phrases, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Isn't that amazing? We don't need to... We don't need to coax God or, or sweet-talk God into action. We don't need to inform him of anything. God isn't distant and unresponsive. God is so on top of our situation that he already knows what we need before we ask. Isn't that incredible? He just wants us to ask. <laughs> he wants us to be in communion with him because he's always ready to respond. He'll respond in a way that brings glory to him. And whenever he does that, it's good for us. But hang on a second. Even in illness, even, even in grief, even when I'm being persecuted, even if I'm lonely, the list can go on and on and on. But these are the kinds of questions that we might struggle with, especially when God doesn't answer our prayers like, he wish he, like we wish he would. You know, after all, we've all got to admit we'd probably much rather serve him with healthy bodies and be free of grief and, and persecution and work side by side with true faithful companions and friends. But what Paul is doing here is reminding us that for the true believer... For the follower of Christ, our lives won't always be like that. Just look at the trials and persecutions and betrayals that Paul experienced. I mean, for that matter, look at the life of Christ. The Lord of all creation was murdered on a cross. But you know what? God used all of Paul's experiences he used all of what happened to Christ, and he uses all of what happens to us for eternal purposes. And so Paul declares in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for whose pleasure? His good pleasure. His pleasure. We're not used to that as Americans. We like living for ourselves, right? But we are here to live 
for God through Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And it is a duty that should bring us a great deal of joy and satisfaction. And James even says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials for the sake of the gospel. And so most of us have been praying for an awfully long time for revival in our country, but uh, to, to at least return to some sort of modicum of, of godly morality in the public square. But it seems like the more we pray, the farther down the drain our culture gets. It's just the way it's going, isn't it? But you see, the key to understanding the proverbial unanswered prayer is that we don't always know or understand the will of God, do we? The psalmist declares that God's ways are unsearchable. So it's pretty unreasonable for us to expect that God answers to us in the things that he does. The issue in our own hearts is whether we truly believe that God is working in us, even when we don't understand his answers. And we need to ask ourselves whether we're willing to allow God to work in us in the way that he wants to. For instance, I used to pray to be healed of my chronic illness. And even though supernatural healing would be an awfully wonderful thing for me, God is showing me that he's got better things, not only for me, but he also wants to accomplish wonders of eternal value through my illness. And so now I find myself praying that God will use my, my broken body to help me know more of his grace and to help, to, to help me exalt God to those around me. And that's what he's done. Praise be to God. I had nothing to do with it. And this is what it means to pray according to God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, God is faithful. God will do what he says. God will take care of us all the way to the end, but he will do so in a way that brings glory to him. And so in the context of Paul's imperative, his command for the Philippians to make their prayers known to God, uh, the believers at at the church at Philippi, uh, Paul is saying, should pray in that kind of confidence, that whatever God's will is, he's going to accomplish it. That's what we need to be confident about. That's what gives us peace. And so as you and I pray for our country, we know that some of our prayers won't be answered in the way we'd like God to answer them. According to God's sovereign will, he will do what he does. He will allow evil to continue or not. That won't last forever if he doesn't. That's the good news. But you see, if we're not careful, In our zeal for what's right, as we watch the world just falling apart, and we know the answer, we know Christ, we know the gospel, we know that this is the answer to all of the world's problems, if we're not careful in our zeal for those righteous things, 
It's easy for us to think of prayer as our way of guiding God, isn't it? But as much as prayer is our communicating and talking to God, prayer is also God guiding us according to his will through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you hear that? Even when we don't know what in the world we should be praying for, God intercedes for us. He intervenes to give us exactly what we need. Now, this isn't a prescription uh, for us not to pray. Of course not. But sometimes we don't know what the will of God is. But even then, God is intervening for us. He's acting in our lives. He hears us and he's acting. And and so the Holy Spirit is acting according to the sovereign will of the Father. Isn't that great news? Isn't that astounding? Now our attitude of prayer always ought to be reverent and humble. We're approaching the throne of the one true God who is greatly to be praised. Heaven forbid that we ever tell God what to do. Just think of Christ's stunningly humble prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he waits for the soldiers to come and arrest him and a week later be crucified. Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 6. And going a little farther, he, Christ, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That should be our prayer every single time we pray. That should be our attitude. Now, Jesus addresses God here as Abba, Father. Uh, He's showing us that in God, in, uh, in God, we have in intimacy with God because of Jesus Christ. God, Christ has, has opened up that veil. We can now communicate with the Father in a way that we weren't able to before. This, was, this kind of thing was absent from the Jewish prayer of Jesus' day. By the time Jesus came to earth, the Jews had sort of forgotten that intimacy with the Lord. And unfortunately, in the last half century, we have muddied the meaning of the term Abba, so we need to correct it. While the term Abba does mean intimacy, it reflects intimacy and affection, it is so far from the daddy that we've made of it. One language expert calls Abba a solemn, responsible adult address to a father. It's both an intimate and reverent way to address God. You know, before my dad died, I would meet him for lunch every week or so. And I don't think I ever lost that sense of awe and reverence of my dad. I was always, I, I just couldn't help it. I, I approached him with this idea that, yes, we're, we're intimate and talking about intimate things, but he's my father. He's my father. He brought me into this world and he guided and and educated me and and brought me up in faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the kind of attitude that we need to have for our father who did vastly more significant things for us 
than any, any earthly father. And to Paul, Abba in prayer signifies our adoption as children of God in Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. It's quite a caveat, isn't it? But all to say, we do have an intimate relationship with God, one that he forged for us, and one that makes it possible for us to approach his throne. When we pray earnestly for what we know is God's will, for instance, uh, that the Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of evil people, that's that's a prayer that we know that we can pray, But we want him to move in the hearts of evil people in the same way he moved in our own evil hearts. We pray that that God's justice would be accomplished. We pray that he would protect his church. We pray that God will defeat the forces of darkness. In all of this, we can be confident that God hears us and that he's faithful to act according to his will. But in the meantime, in the meantime, as Paul said, We are to share in the sufferings of Christ and yet share in those sufferings with peace, not anguish. Peace, a peace that can only come from him. And as our next verse in verse 7 will teach us at the end of December, this is a peace that surpasses understanding. There's no way in the world we can conjure up this peace. There's no way in the world that enough sessions of yoga are going to give us this peace. There's no way in the world that watching enough TV is going to give us this kind of peace. There's no way in the world walking in the woods for hundreds of miles could give us this peace. There's no way in the world that having status and all of those things that come with it can give us peace. It only comes from God. And so we pray and we offer up our supplications to the living God who hears us and who acts when we pray. So the attitude in which we pray ought to be thanksgiving. It only follows. Our confidence as we look forward to what God will faithfully do in the future, and as we remember what God uh, is, as we as we remember what God has done in the past, uh, this is also what causes us to be thankful for what God is doing right now. Thankful is the T in the Acts model of prayer. Paul was a man who was constantly thankful in his prayers. Because he knew that not only was God at work, but that God would finish his work. There's no question about this in Paul's mind, and there shouldn't be in ours. And so Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by reviewing uh, with them the prayers that he's prayed for for the church there. In verse 3 of chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every 
prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's a promise for us too. Paul's prayer is very much in the present, in the moment. It's right here, in the here and now, amongst the whole bunch of yuck in the world. But he anticipates the future as well, and what God will do, and, and what God is doing in the here and now, and what God will do causes him to be full of thanksgiving. He's full of thanksgiving because of the partnership that God has forged with him in the Philippians. That they can proclaim the gospel in a hostile world and do it in unity and, and, and together. His thankful prayer looks ahead, confident that God is going to finish the work that he started in them. And what is Paul's prayer? Verse 9, beginning verse 9 of Philippians 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, to the glory and praise of God. And so it's no wonder then that Paul prayed with thanksgiving. He was praying the, for the Philippians for the very same things that God was already doing in him. He was praying by experience. He was praying for a close relationship with God through Christ and for a strong witness to the glory of God. And so Paul knew that he wasn't standing on the back stoop shouting with no one to hear. He knew that God listens and that he moves in our lives. He knows all of this from experience. Christ will complete the good work in Paul. Christ will com complete the good work in, in, in the Philippians too. And, Paul, and, and Christ will complete the good work in us, won't he? And so no wonder we should pray with thanksgiving. Look at what God's going to do. We have a lot to be thankful for. Even when the going gets rough in our lives. Salvation. The fact that God does hear us and, and act and move in our hearts and in the world. The fact we have brothers and sisters in Christ who care about us and, and who will pray for us, lifting to God their humble supplications for us, even as we do the same for them. And the list goes on and on and on. You could take the rest of the day and night to complete your own. So how do we have peace in this world? Peace comes by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Knowing that we serve the great God who cares about us, who hears us, who listens to us, who moves on our behalf, even when life is hard. And you know what? Even as we anticipate a day when our rights may be taken away because we love the Lord. But ultimately, prayer brings us peace, even when we suffer for the sake of the good news, because prayer is a matter of drawing near to God by way of Calvary, isn't it? By way of the cross. 
It's at the throne of our great God that we can experience every single day the mercy and grace of our Lord. Our circumstances don't matter. And so God wants us to be engaged in the world. He wants us to pray in our circumstances. But he wants to give us peace too. And through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we find peace. And so we'll let the author of Hebrews have the last word here. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, may we all be encouraged today to pray more and worry a whole lot less. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, you are great. You are mighty. You are everlasting. You love us. You care for us. You are a great God who is greatly to be praised. And so we give you honor and glory this day because of your holiness, because of who you are. Father, we confess our sins to you. We pray, Father, that as you bring them to mind and convict us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to draw near to you, to repent of our sins, so there might not be a barrier between us and you. Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have in you. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son in the flesh to become one of us. And to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we might live forever with you in paradise, in your glory, in your presence. And so, Father, just as we opened the service today, we ask that you would hear the prayers on our hearts, that you would speak into our lives, that you would cause us to be vessels of grace and mercy to those around us, we pray, Lord, for the world. We pray for our, uh, our current president and, and whoever is going to be president next. Uh, if there's any doubt about that, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would guide and direct them and that your will would be done in and through them. And help us, Lord, to be confident that no matter what happens, you've got this and you've got us. And no one will ever, ever snatch us out of your hands. So all honor and glory indeed does belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.